What's wrong with education? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Russ Roberts. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Russ Roberts. Russ is the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and the John and Jean Deneau Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Roberts has taught at George Mason University, Washington University in St. Louis, where he was the founding director of what is now the Center of Experiential Learning, the University of Rochester, Stanford University, and the University of California, Los Angeles. He earned his PhD from the University of Chicago. Russ also hosts the weekly podcast Econ Talk, which features hour-long conversation with guests. Past ones include Milton Friedman, Thomas Piketty, and Christopher Hitchens, just to name a few. And he's also written several excellent books that make economics and economic history accessible and fun to read. His most recent book was How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. That was the focus of our last episode together. Russ, welcome to The Curious Task. Welcome back, I should say. Great to be with you. It's great to have you on. So, Russ, in each episode, we start with a question and take us wherever the answers lead us. Our question today is, what's wrong with education? And I think the best way to go about this one is really to start with your overall perspective on what a good education might look like and how we might think on what an educated person might truly look like and so on and so forth. So as as a jumping off point, I noted here, to start, what I think is in a good place with, with a quote, actually, of you. This is from an article. We can leave it in our episode notes um, where you're being interviewed about becoming the new president of Shalem College. So this is this is from Roberts, as I was saying, listeners. So you say, Russ, the ideal education is less of a focus on information and more on open inquiry, less worry about the right answers and more concern for asking the right questions. So there's actually a couple different points in there. So as a jump off point, let's just start with this idea that right off the bat, you noted open inquiry first. When we reset our minds on what you think a good education is, what do you mean by that open inquiry part? Uh, I saw the psychology fearless inquiry, uh, not being afraid of what you might discover. A lot of ideas make us uncomfortable. A lot of facts make us uncomfortable. A lot of ideologies make us uncomfortable, and that a real education, a person who's concerned about discovering what might be true, uh, needs to be open about what they can let their minds consider. And that's hard, really unpleasant. Most of us, including me, don't like it most, most of the time. It's taken me a long time to get interested in, in, in seeing that as a plus and not a minus. But I think... Um, it's a crucial piece of the of the puzzle, but it's not the only thing. I think a lot of people make a mistake. I learned this from a guest from my podcast uh, named uh, Zena Hitz. She wrote a book called Lost in Thought. And one of the things she observes is that people complain about education. There's none of diverse opinion. And as if opinion is what you go to acquire in being educated. And that's really not what education's about. It's mm. not about, gee, who's got the best opinion? Because most things are complicated. You, you might prefer one opinion to another opinion, but if you really want to master something or understand something deeply, uh, you don't want somebody's opinion about, say, a policy or uh, a philosophy of how government might be run or how you should lead your life. You're not looking for an opinion 
a flag, a banner to get under. That's not education. Mm. It's interesting. It might create community. It might create uh, activism that you might want to be part of. But education is not about figuring out which opinion you should hold. If it were, then it would be really important that you'd have different choices and lots of opinions. But education is a lot deeper than that. And I think we often, it's so rare that we we encounter it so rarely as students in our lives that if we're unlucky, we don't even know what it is, how to recognize it. Never experienced a, a moment of real education. When you have, your head cracks open. You see things you didn't see before. You have a set of tools for how to live, for how to think. So real education is is much more than just opinions and being exposed to different opinions. It's much more than information or facts, as I mentioned in that in that quote. It's it's really about turning your mind into a tool that can achieve things. And, and by a tool, I, I really some unease about that word. I don't mean to suggest that it can, you know, build you a house, although of course it can if you're skilled in carpentry, you have knowledge of carpentry. But I really think of it as a a way of encountering the world. And when your mind is is sufficiently well honed, when it is well if when you are well educated, you're able to use your mind to understand things that otherwise you wouldn't. And that it's in that way it's kind of simple. Right. And 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 that's why I liked at the end of that quote too, you said like, you know, less worry about the right answers, as you said, and more concern for asking the right questions. So it's the idea of, of, of instead of what to think, more of the, the how to think and having the tools to, th- yeah. to think on, well on your own terms. And, and interesting here too, you also said education is not currently preparing students to ask questions as what is a life well lived? Or even in the case of some working in tech, for example, he said, will the technology I'm developing help human beings flourish? Like these bigger sort of questions. And I find that that was very interesting too, because that even broadens the conversation on education further than just, for example, uh, how to think and think critically and so on. You're also talking about coupling the bigger questions even to the more what might appear relatively be the the more straightforward minor things in life that people are doing. At least that's what I got from that. No, that's exactly right. Uh, I think we often confuse the acquisition of skills or knowledge with education. And of course, they're not unrelated, but they're not the same thing. A lot of education is what we might call pre-professional. Uh, It prepares you for a profession. It prepares you either with a set of tools that are useful in that profession, accounting, say, uh, computer science, say, medicine, even very practical things, very important things. But those are not the only aspects of education. Uh, I like to make a distinction between uh, where you're going and how to get there. Waze or Google Maps or some other app you might use on your phone is really good for figuring out how to get somewhere. It tells you nothing about where you should, where you want to go. Mm. <laughs> and they're, they're, we get so obsessed with getting there as quickly as possible, we sometimes forget that maybe we should be going someplace else. So when we think about uh, pre-professional education, which can be very useful, uh, it's not the only kind of education, but we can define it. And so we're t- it's a temptation like ways to say, well, 
I'm going to gather all these, this mix of skills and then also credentials to get to where, to get to this place. And, and to me, a serious education also has a component of trying to think about where you want to go. And at Shalem College here in Jerusalem, we really love it when students show up and say, I'm not sure what I want to do when I get out. And that's okay. And, and there are people who know. That's great. You know, some people at 18 know what they want to do with the rest of their life. It's a little bit surprising because you don't know very much when you're 18, even though you might think otherwise. Uh, I did when I was 18. I thought I knew most everything. Right. That's kind of what it is to be 18. But it's okay to say, I need to learn more before I want to think about what I want to learn. <laughs> and that's a crazy idea, but I think that's in many ways the essence of a good education. And I think when you talk, mention flourishing and a life well lived, there's a component of education that is also involved with both values, which is related to the idea of where you want to go, but also related to understanding yourself, understanding your own shortcomings, your weaknesses, your flaws, your, uh, your self-deception, these are aspects of the human experience that I think a good education should alert you to. Right. And I suppose connected with that is also the idea of uh, if you're trying to be an educated person to challenge yourself on what you might think would be defined as like a successful person or a successful life. Because in a narrow sense, that might just mean, as you said, sort of you do your pre-professional education, get into your professional, make a bunch of money, have a great house. That might be one definition of success. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. But I think when we tie this conversation of education, broadening the idea of what a successful life is, I, I, I probably suspect you'd think it's a little broader than just what I outlined. Right. And there's not, again, nothing wrong with that. Uh, it can be a, certainly a, a pleasant part of, of existence is to have material well-being and material comfort, but you might be open to the possibility that there's more to life than that. There's more to success, uh, as, as you use the phrase. Um, I want to get this quote right. So John Stuart Mill, in his book, Utilitarianism, said, it is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Mm. That's a, um, it's an interesting perspective. Is it, It's not a true or false statement. I was going to say it's true. It's obviously something each person has to think about for themselves. Is there anything wrong with being a pig? Enjoying sitting in the mud, eating a lot, uh, having a good life. Maybe you're a pet pig, even better. You're not going to be cut up for food, <laughs> right. slaughtered. Um, is there anything wrong with that? Is you know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates, right? Uh, can't you just be a pig, be happy? Seems, seems pretty good. So the question is, is, is what's missing from that life? Obviously, John Stuart Mill felt something was missing. He says a human being dissatisfied is better than being a pig satisfied, meaning there's something in the human experience that beyond physical pleasure, comfort, pleasant feelings, and so on. And so the, you know, that's part of education is to think about that. Is that true? Is it is it is a life well lived simply, good career, nice home? Pleasant, plenty, plenty of food to eat, uh, nice, nice vacations to the beach, the mountains, foreign places you want to go. Is that the life well lived? Some would say it is, and they're welcome to it if they want. That's okay. Uh, others would say there's more to life than that. 
there's there are parts of life that uh, involve our humanity that go beyond our physicality that involve our relationships with those around us, our achievements, the meaning that we might have, the purpose that we say our life is having, if any. And exploring those questions that don't have simple answers and don't have direct answers, that's part of the educational process. It's part of coming a, for me, it's part of becoming a grown-up. Uh, it's part of being a full, realized human being. Mm. And, and connecting that thought to sort of where we can get sources of uh, w- wisdom to like sort of fuel how we each think on these things and where we want to go and so on and so forth. I want to connect this to another one of your thoughts. Y- you said that we're only going to flourish both as individuals and as communities when we not only focus on the future, but also explore the wisdom of the past and come to appreciate all that it can teach us. Now, I really like your phrasing of that because I think it's safe to say that a lot of us whether through conventional education or unconventional education, learn about the past. And we might remember some facts and understand some things that happened. But this idea of exploring the wisdom of the past, could you sort of jump into that a little further? Because clearly you you, you would differentiate that from just learning about the past. What do you mean by exploring the wisdom of the past? Well, I think it's even – I have more to say. I don't know why I said it that way. But um, because for me – it's not simply, certainly, I certainly agree with you that it's not enough to know what happened. Some people think, you know, that's history. History is finding out what happened. Seems almost true by definition. That's history. Right. But that's kind of a thin definition of history. You know, the next level up would be why did what happened happen? Need it have happened? Are there other things that could have happened instead? Did people make mistakes? What role did individuals play? What role did cultural forces play? What role did a special, a unique person who, who intervened in history, uh, did they play a special role? Or would they have just been replaced by someone else? Those are some of the things that you talk about in history. But there's a deeper idea that I want to add to that, which is understanding who you are and recognizing that who you are is not simply a product of your genetic endowment that you get from your biological parents Mm. who you are is you're a person certainly in a family you're a person often in a nation you're a person within a culture you come into the world as a as a thinking semi fully realized adult meaning at 18 or 21 or if you're lucky a little earlier if you're not lucky a little later but you're influenced in all kinds of ways by currents that you don't fully appreciate. If you don't study history and you don't study culture and you don't study literature and you don't study ideas, you won't understand how you came to be who you are. You might think, oh, well, if I were born in fill in the blank country X, I'd be just as successful as I am now. It's not necessarily true. Mm. Uh, where you were born, what religion you're brought up in, if any, what culture your community embodies. If you don't understand that, you're handicapped a little bit in understanding who you are and and why you are the way you are. And understanding that is useful. It's, It's also fascinating. It's part of, to me, again, what makes us uniquely human and not a pig. Um, it's not unimportant, 
But it's amazing how easy it is, it is for us to imagine that we're just a blank slate. I mean, I can believe whatever I want. I can just, I just, I just look around and see what I think is true. And but if you can't fully understand where you came from, you you can't understand what your limitations are intellectually, emotionally, and culturally, and thinking about what you might want to become. So. I think a lot lately about aspiration, the idea of what you might aspire to. And it's tied in with this idea that what you might aspire to is sometimes limited by what you've experienced and what your culture has experienced and brought to the table for you. And also it can be liberating. It can allow you to to flourish in a way that wouldn't be possible for someone coming from a different background in a different culture. The West is different from the East. The Middle East, where I live now, is very different from America, where I live most of my life. Mm. Uh, when you when you make a move like I've made to to Israel, and you realize that the norms of educated people who feel like you are not quite the same because they grew up in a different culture, they grew up in a different set of of ideas that molded them in ways that they don't fully understand. And then you realize, oh, I've got the same issue. I don't fully understand what molded me. And so I think part of education, when we talk about the past, is understanding what brought us to where we stand as individuals and as members of a culture, members of a nation, members of a community, members of a religious group or an ethnic group. All those things affect us. And as you start to peel back the onion and think about who you who you are, uh, you get a much richer picture than if you don't know about those things or think about. Right. And it, it's a little early yet, but I, I think that is an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Russ Roberts today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Yakov Mikhailovich, Alessandro Fiorello, and Scott Scheel. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. And check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Russ Roberts today. Russ, I, I thought the first half was a great setup, especially to explore how what you think of education, a good education might look like in general, what an education educated person might strive to do if they're trying to be more of an educated person, I should say. I want to shift gears a little bit now here too, as we'll drill deeper into sort of what kind of frameworks, institutions, and so on can like provide that kind of environment for for an edu- for a person to improve their education and so on. So starting a little bit more general on this pillar, and I, I don't mean here like specific universities or programs or diplomas and no, degrees, but just as an outlook overall, what do you see on the fundament, as the fundamental differences between sort of a liberal arts education or outlook versus more of, more of a STEM one? So I think it's hard to put into words, but I think it's really important to think about it because I think most people think when they hear the word liberal education, most people don't know what liberal arts education is. So, it, you know, it's usually misunderstood but what i mean by it is the study of philosophy philosophy literature and history but it's more than that it's grappling 
with the great ideas that are embodied in those fields in a way that is different than you might uh, learn, again, a pre-professional skill. And I think it's easy to misunderstand what those fields are about. So let's let's take uh, take them one by one. A lot of people, I think, would say that, well, history is you have to understand the past. That's the study of the past. Literature is like reading fiction. And philosophy is is like what people think is like the purpose of life. <laughs> and, well, that's disturbing because, first of all, we don't really know what the purpose of life is. Philosophers don't agree about that. Mm-hmm. that. That's all philosophy is. That's bad. That's discouraging. If literature is just reading fiction and nice books and, ha- and having a pleasant few hours while you read them, that, that kind of, it's nice, but is that really what you should go to college for? And similar to history is just learning out what happened. You can get that on Wikipedia. So I, I think it's important to understand the subtlety of what a true liberal arts education is trying to achieve. Or let's just call it a real education. Um, that's, that's not, as you say, STEM. It's not the acquisition of, say, precepts of engineering, not how to code in computer science, not the acquiring of, of certain mathematical abilities in this formal study of mathematics, and certainly not uh, the S of STEM is science, physics, chemistry, biology all have uh, well-established sets of knowledge and techniques all up for re- uh, refutation if, if new evidence comes along. But certainly there's a formal body of knowledge mm. at, the, at any one point in time as to what's true in those fields as best as we understand it, given our limited understanding and perfect understanding. And I think what what we're talking about, what I'm talking about when I talk about education, it is something richer than that. It's more than just, well, I read a lot of interesting books and I feel like I learned something or I learned about the past and now I know more about where I came from. Or I learned what a lot of smart people thought was added meaning to life or what we might call philosophy. What I'm really talking about in a cliche is learning how to think. And I think that it's a cliche, right? Most people would say that, oh yeah, liberal arts education, that's that's teaching you how to think. What does that, you know, what does that really mean? And, and what it means to me to go beyond the cliche is that a great education teaches you the power of a set of skills that are not obvious when you're studying facts or information. When you're studying facts, or you have to have facts and information, by the way. Mm-hmm. If you don't have them, you've got nothing. Uh, you, you may as well, I don't know, be, I can't even think of what the right analogy is. But you have to have facts and information. But as you start to acquire a perspective on the great minds of the past, as you read books like the Iliad and the Odyssey, when you read the plays of Shakespeare, when you read great uh, thinkers in philosophy like Nietzsche or Plato or Aristotle, when you first encounter them or you read a great book like The Sound and the Fury, read, read The Sound and the Fury the first time, you don't get much out of it. It's like, I don't even know what's happening. I don't know who's talking. <laughs> That's a waste of time. That's, that, that is a reasonable first reaction. Most of the ideas in these great books are hard. They're not obvious not a list it's not something to memorize it's not something to to be tested on 
It's something to be internalized and used. It is to, to grapple with these great texts and in the experience of trying to understand them and seeing their richness, giving you a set of ideas and a set of perspectives that you can point elsewhere. That's real education. Real education is when you realize that an idea that you've read in one place is actually related to this other idea over here. And when I put them together, I get something new. That's called thinking, mm-hmm. right? We tend to think of thinking as doing a big math problem right. or uh, be another example, um, creating a, a, a molecule. Now, creating a molecule in a chemistry lab requires creativity. It requires deep understanding of the fundamentals. But some of it's trial and error. Nothing wrong with trial and error. A huge part of, of the acquisition of knowledge and, and, and experience. But the idea of education that I'm talking about would be to take a concept like, say, randomness. Randomness is not uh, hard to define. We understand random. It means, oh, it's not regular. It doesn't have uh, a, a formal process, perhaps, that's, that has a, a predictable outcome. So that's, not, that's a bad but not a horrible definition of randomness. But to understand randomness, you spend your lifetime thinking about it mm-hmm. and getting a deeper and deeper and richer understanding uh, same thing would be true of risk, uncertainty, data, how to think about those things. Take a trivial example. I want to understand something. It might be income in a nation. It might be uh, how long it takes people to travel a certain distance. It might be uh, how much a particular group of people, how tall they are. And we, we have statistical methods for doing those things. And the most common one is the average. Now, the average is a really amazing tool that somebody thought of to think about how to summarize a very diverse set of, of information. Mm-hmm. So most people, I think, listening know what the definition of average is. You take all that, the uh, observations in the sample that you're looking at, you add them all up, and you divide by the number of observations in the sample. That's the definition of an average. So now you know what an average is, but you don't understand the average. You you might be fooled into thinking you do because you know the definition, Mm. but to understand it deeply, I mean, like just to throw a few things out, the first thing you might want to worry about is, well, how representative is the average of the group? I mean, is the average a good measure of the average? Meaning the in everyday life, we use the word average to mean like typical. Right. Is the average person typical? Is the average income typical? And you start, it's, if you want to understand data, you start to think about the idea of an outlier, something that's wildly different mm-hmm. from the average, not similar to the other observations. That'd be one example. Or how deep is this river? I can't swim. So I'm worried if I cross it, I'll drown. It's a very wide river. How deep is it? Well, on average, it's a foot deep. Oh, okay. Then I can cross. Well, no, that would be dangerous. It, 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 it could be safe to cross, but if even though the average is only a foot, could be many large stretches that are much deeper than a foot, you'll drown and die. Oh, well, yeah, I get that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
okay, okay, okay. But then you, as you start to think and learn more and more about the complexity of, of variation within any data set, you start to realize that, you know, average is really complicated. <laughs> and so then you'll have a illustration of that. Like I just gave you one, the river. Right. Oh, okay. I get that. Oh, that means that if I'm crossing a river and I can't swim, I better know more about it than just how deep it is on average. I, I probably want to know what's the deepest it gets and for how far. Oh, okay. I got that. I got that. Great. Well, does that have something to do with the stock market? Well, how could it? I mean, really, the stock market is something like crossing a river and swimming isn't anything like investing. It's, that's silly. But when you start to think about it, you realize that if somebody says that the average return of some stock exchange has been 8% over the last 80 years, should that make you feel comfortable or not comfortable? Well, you might want to know how, what's the worst it could be. How deep could it get? Right. If I, in, and how long? If it, could it go down 10%? Could it go down 25%? And how long would it last for? Would it be for three months, a year, 10 years? Well, you should probably look into that before you cross that river, before you make that investment in that stock exchange. And then you might want to worry about the fact that you can actually imagine measuring the depth of the river right. at its deepest point and for how far that depth persists. But you cannot know how much the stock market will go down in the next year based on the past. Because the future could be different from the past. And even though the stock market you're looking at has never, stock exchange, has never, ever, ever, not once in the last 100 years gone down more than 12%, it doesn't mean it can't go down by more than 12% next year. And when you start to realize that, you realize, wow, I, I, this is more complicated than I thought. Start to see other things it applies to. And then you start to think about, well, what do, how do I use this? knowledge that I'm starting to acquire in areas beyond swimming and the stock market. And that to me is education. Mm. When you take an insight and you can apply it to things that you weren't taught about before, that's knowledge. Uh, my favorite course evaluation I ever received was from a student who said, gave me a one out of five and said, my economics class was unfair because, quote, Professor Roberts expected us to apply the theory to material we'd never seen before. Hmm. And I thought, I started, after that, I, I was announced on the first day of class. I said, let me tell you what this class is about. This class is exactly about that. So I don't want you to think it's unfair. You don't want to be in it. Don't want to be part of it. That's fine. Don't, don't, don't stay. Right. But this class is about learning to apply what we've learned to something we haven't seen before. That's knowledge. That's education. That's learning. And then to be able to take something totally unrelated and combine it with that insight into, say, average or expected and realize, wow, you know, when I add those together, I get something I hadn't thought of before. That's knowledge. That's power. It's it's more than that, though. It's one of the greatest pieces of the human experience. It's part of what it means to not be a pig. <laughs> right. It, it, even if it's not useful, forget about crossing rivers and investing your money and 
because I think it's about a lot more than that, by the way. It's not just practical. Those insights are the right. average and expected. But the idea of what human beings have been able to understand about the human heart and courage and fear and bravery and cowardice and risk-taking, those are all the richest parts of who we are as human beings. And to me, they have a value in and of themselves, even if they don't help you in the stock market. Right. No, I absolutely agree. And as you said, a, a value in and of itself, those processes. And I said earlier that we we were going to probably shift at some point to talking a little bit more practically about your thoughts on the school system. And the way it's I think that's an excellent place that you just ended to jump into Great. that. Because on that exact note, on the exact same train of thought that you were saying, if that's what an education um, really means... Um, I want to sort of talk about what there probably would be in terms of fundamental problems with what people view as the current education system, if you will. So on sure. every, based on everything you just said then, and this is at least my observation, so please don't allow the question to be based on something that you might say think is unfair, but I think it's, I, I think it's fair and you could tell me. Based on everything you said then, do you find it disturbing that kids are meant, again, in my opinion, to spend approximately two decades in educational institutions that end up being sitting down, shut up, shutting up, listening remembering things and doing tests. I think I think we need to be serious about, you know, that amount of time doing that kind of thing and then how we expect people to maybe pop into a university after and uh as you said, be comfortable with the idea of applying knowledge and education to materials they've never seen before. Yeah, I, no I find most of the current educational system around the world, whether it's in the United States, here in Israel, high school or college yeah, deeply disturbing. Um, one way to think about it is, of all the things you know, and I heard this from an economist, David Henderson, of all the things you know, how many of them came from school? <laughs> uh, some, for sure. Mm -hmm. Everything I know about calculus came from school. <laughs> uh, and, and obviously, uh, everything I know about um, uh, baseball came from not school, but it's amazing if you think about how much comes from conversations, how much comes from your parents, how much comes from your own reading outside of school versus what you learn in school. And the, that would be okay, except you spend a lot of time in school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, you're asleep seven, eight hours a day when you're younger. Uh, you spend about eight hours a day in school, and then you got to have some time for eating and basic life stuff. You spend a lot of time in school. Yeah. Now you can't learn every minute. It's not like I don't. I don't. I'm not saying it's wasted because you don't maximize how much time you spend learning. A lot of times, learning takes place when we're not trying to learn, when our brain is working on its own, doing the kind of synthesizing I was talking about earlier. But as you suggest, the idea of sitting in your chair, listening to a lecture and writing stuff down. Now, sometimes you have to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to over romanticize real education. So like I said, you need facts mm -hmm. and you need an understanding of certain basic knowledge to be able to think. But what, what you don't want to do is what somebody said uh, to me the other day. Uh, to know something is to know what other people know about it. That's a really low standard of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think too much of education is that kind of uh, learning. 
It's finding out what other people said, taking notes on it, being tested on it, and then showing that you were paying attention. And think about it. For an academic, that is education. Education for them, for the academic life, the academic life is you're supposed to know what other people have said about Schopenhauer or what other people have said about the Iliad, and then adding something that hasn't been said before, either adding it uh, from a, a new ideological perspective, a new philosophical perspective, seeing an insight into it that just from the text. And so to do that, you have to know what other people have said about it. But to read the Iliad and the Odyssey and to learn from them, to learn with them, is not to learn what other people have said about it. It's for you to uncover what the text means, what it says to you, what its, its insights are for the human experience. It's to, it's to grapple with the richness of possible interpretation. Uh, you, you can read the Iliad or the Odyssey or Hamlet. 1722, 300 years ago, uh, a person could read the Iliad and the Odyssey and Shakespeare and get a lot out of it, even though they didn't read any of the academic literature on those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why they're great books. If, if you know, that, That's why they're still worth reading. Uh, now, does it mean you can't learn anything from the ac- academic study of, of great works of literature, history, or philosophy? You can. But the text itself is of great value. That's, you know, we come back to the first thing, the first quote you read at the very beginning, the wisdom of the past. The fact, uh, to quote William Faulkner, William Faulkner in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech talked about the human heart in conflict with itself. That challenge, the human heart in conflict with itself, that's a really old challenge. It doesn't get any older than that. That's at the heart, pardon the phrase, pardon the word. That's at the essence of who we are, that our urges and wants and aspirations often don't work so well together. And now what? That's what Faulkner argued is the essence of great literature, great art. Uh, that never gets old. Uh, we're, we're, as long as we're human and not a machine or a robot, it never is going to get old. And thinking about that and struggling with it and reading what great thinkers have said about that and their insights, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't need the latest uh, journal article, peer-reviewed journal article, to, to really appreciate great literature and great philosophy and great history. So I think, I think it's here, – here's the problem. Those ideas and the acquisition of those ideas, the attempt to fully understand those ideas, I'm going to repeat that because that noise, the attempt to fully understand those ideas, those don't work so well in a factory setting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what at the university level, it's a factory. You You have a big group. You have a big room, and you have a professor in the front of the room speaking. The students are taking notes. Many of them aren't there. They're going to watch it later on, on recording. And that's, it's not of, that's not of no value. It's of some value, just like reading a book is of value. You, you can't discuss with the author directly. 
But what you can do is you can discuss with your classmates what the author might have meant and to come to a richer and deeper understanding through that process. But that doesn't scale very well. It doesn't work well in a large group setting. You can try. I used to do it a little bit when I teach large classes. I could still have some give and take with the class, Mm -hmm. but it's very hard to do and it's limited. It's a different experience than a small group of people exploring something in, in that within that group in conversation both with each other and the author the authors could be dead certainly not in the room 99.9 percent of the time but you're still in conversation with the author because you've got their text in front of you and that that's a tough sell right because to do that is expensive it's expensive literally it takes small classes Right. Skilled people to facilitate that conversation. The, the professor plays a very different role in that setting. The professor isn't the font of wisdom. The professor is on the explore, exploration with alongside the students. Mm-hmm. But my point is that the the professor is not dispensing knowledge. The professor is facilitating the acquisition of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, 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 there's a subtle point we haven't talked about yet, which is, I think, in real education, which is that when you're told something, you might remember it. Even if you remember it, you might not be able to use it. But if you acquire something, if you acquire knowledge, if you, if you through your own effort and work, you come to understand what an author is driving at, that knowledge has a different quality inside you. Mm-hmm. It is it is much more likely to be able to be used because you've internalized it. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this experience with one of my one of my colleagues here at Shalem, Asaf Bari, a professor who was teaching to a faculty colloquium, uh, a poem by Yeats, and he could have told us in three minutes what the poem meant. When I first read the poem, I got nothing out of it. I had no idea what it was about. It's called After Long Silence. It was a poem Yates I'd never heard of. Mm. I had no idea what it was about. He didn't tell us what it was about. We worked at it together and came to our understanding that I'm sure it wasn't the same. I'm sure every person in the room had a different level of, of rich uh, thinking about what Yates wrote in that poem. But whatever level you had at the end of that hour and a half, uh, he, the professor could have just told us, couldn't he? Right. What Yates' quote really meant. And then after about a week, I'd have forgotten it. And it'd just be totally gone. <laughs> but because I worked at it, I, I think I have it forever, actually. And I, when I see something that's related to those insights, I'll I'll be able to pull on that, draw on that set of insights from that experience of studying Yates it's totally different than if I'd read an essay or had been told by the mm-hmm. faculty member or the professor what the poem means. Obviously, first of all, you know, it, it doesn't really mean one thing. So it's not like, oh, this is what it means. It, again, there are layers of understanding. There's a richness of understanding. But there's something totally different when you acquire that knowledge through your own effort than when you're told. And... So much of what we learn, I think, at the high school and university level, certainly in the United States, certainly here in Israel, is just being told. And mm-hmm. um, 
again, being told can be powerful. You can hear a speech or a presentation or a lecture that makes you think. I don't mean to suggest there's no learning or knowledge that takes place there, but it's different when you work at it yourself and you come to your own understanding Absolutely. and you own it. Very different. Absolutely. And that own it part, right? There's something different about using your mind to sort of mix your mental labor, if you will, and come yeah. up with conclusions that you yourself own. There might not be the first person on the planet to think of these things, but that's beside the point. You're not. It's your own yeah. your own sort of effort and your own acquisition versus using it as basically a copy and paste device, right? Because we can do that with Correct. our brains too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um and and on that exact note, sort of looking at, at the at the future of education, if you will, and I think this is there's a lot of discussion right now from politicians, even intellectuals, uh, what what's called sort of leaders of industry now in places like Silicon Valley and so on and so forth on the on the tech side about where education is going in the future, and in a way, uh, there's sort of an optimistic tone um, about what they're saying. Which is basically, oh, you know, with all this technology right at our fingertips, the sort of classroom style learning is a thing of the past. And again, I should say this is applying in their minds from everything through almost K to like university now. Um, they're oh, saying, you know, sure. you say, hey, like the classroom is a thing of the past with, uh, with you know, uh, our, our telecommunications devices, computers, so on and so forth. We can be in the same room together virtually. We can sit and listen to a lecture with uh, – with with our you know Google search or any other internet device, we have every answer at the uh, at right at our fingertips. If if we need, we don't need these big tests anymore. We can just get the facts and then spit them back out. You know, in the in the in the longer term future, you have people talking about things like Neuralinks in our head and how we'll just be able to think of an answer and get it. And in one sense, there's a tone of optimism about all this because it's being viewed as a great improvement on quote unquote education that we don't have to be as inefficient with these classrooms and so on and so forth to me. And this is ultimately the question I want to throw back at you for people to talk about that technological improvement as solving the problem of education in a certain way is sort of, to me, in a way outlining exactly what the problem of the fundamental outlook on education is <laughs> by them saying, we're going to be able to do all these things. I think they're describing the problem with what we view it, as it is, if, if you see what I'm trying to say. I know what you're trying to say. And I think you're onto something. I think you're it, technology, by the way, you know, there was a lot of optimism that education was going to be revolutionized by technology. This goes back about maybe eight years um, when platforms like Udacity and Coursera and others were going to, uh, scale like we were talking about a minute ago that they were going to be able to teach hundreds of thousands of people and of course it works for some things and it's fabulous one thing to keep in mind is that if you have a horrible teacher uh technology-based teacher could be a lot better mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're sitting in if you're sitting in a small intimate classroom with with 10 other students and the teacher's awful you're not going to learn very much. Right. Uh, you're, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. And one of the promises of the application of technology education, which is wonderful, is the idea of letting great teachers teach more than 12 people. Teach 100, teach 1,000, teach 100,000. And there are some classes. So I'll take calculus as an example. Calculus is not part of the liberal arts. It's a STEM-based discipline. Uh, there are calculus classes online that reach tens and hundreds of thousands of people where the instructor is so fabulous that they're much better than, than the class 
that a person might take at their local school with only 10 or 12 or 15 students. Because in that class, even though it's small, which has promise, their faculty member isn't ca- the teacher isn't capable of of leveraging that small size effectively. They don't know how to they don't know how to help you acquire the kind of insights we're talking about a minute ago. In fact, there's a famous example I sometimes talk about on an econ talk. Not famous, sorry. The people are semi not even famous. <laughs> it's famous because I like the example. I guess fair enough. <laughs> but, but if I remember correctly, it was. Alfred Marshall, the British economist, uh, who, who at the time was probably considered, if not the greatest living economist, but certainly one of the top handful, he had a student, A.C. Pugu, who became, and I think I'm getting the youth versus old person, right? Teacher and the student. Pugu would come to class, took, took a class from Marshall. Well, it turned out he was the only student in the class. And that didn't stop Marshall from going to the front of the class, opening his lecture notes. And, Election <laughs> didn't take didn't take any advantage of the fact that he had only one student mm. that he had a that that he had effectively had a um, he was a tutor to to one student right he taught the lectures if there were a thousand students in the room so if you have a bad I don't know Marshall may have been a fabulous teacher I don't want to criticize him I have no idea but if you have a bad teacher calculus in person an online version of calculus could be much much better because that person who's teaching it even though it's not face-to-face, even though you're watching a video, even though you can't ask questions directly, it can be a a great learning experience uh, for a field like calculus. Much harder to do that with Shakespeare. You can watch a series of great lectures on Shakespeare. It's pretty good. You get something out of it. Uh, It's of value, but there's a limit. And, And I think what we found, a lot of the earlier enthusiasm that you were referring to that still persists, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning that the whole school system is going to be revolutionized. People are going to stop going to class. They just sit at home. They do self-directed tutorials online. They'd acquire all this stuff that now they have to spend too much money on. You could have one great teacher teaching a million students instead of a million teachers teaching, excuse me, I'll say a thousand teachers teachers teaching a thousand students badly. In each class, it, it, you know, the whole thing was going to change. And it changed a piece of the industry of education. It did have some impact. And it could be that in the future, they'll get better at it. You know, the, so it's this promise. Well, you know, the testing isn't very good. We're going to we'll get better. It'll just get better and better. It's not the testing that needs to get better. It's the interaction between the student's mind and the material. Certain kinds of material, the kind of technological solutions you're talking about may work very well. Uh, maybe acquisition of language, maybe acquisition of, of certain formal techniques like mathematics. But for the kind of questions that we're talking about now, mm-hmm. um, about the human experience, doesn't work quite so well. Works much better in smaller groups. That's frustrating. It means if we want it to happen, we have to devote many more resources to it than we would otherwise probably be prepared to do. And uh, we don't do it very well. Uh, It's also something that is not done well by lots of people. There aren't like zillions of great teachers laying around who can, who can do the kind of facilitating and an exploration that I'm talking about. So that's frustrating and it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's um, people are always hoping there's a fix. We just get this, I get this software 
I mean, think how so many th- problems that we have in our lives, software fixes them, right? I know how to get from A to B. We talked about that earlier, you know, travel. I can figure out what movie I'm probably going to like. There's so many ways that software makes our lives easier. Kind of things we're talking about, not so much. That's disappointing. Right. I like to think it's going to be turn out differently, but I'm, I'm not optimistic about the ability of technology to teach us the deep questions of life. Fair enough. And a lot of it, by the way, a lot of it's going to comes from living. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about the education you get that's not in the classroom. It's a lot of things that until you cross that river and <laughs> go under, you really don't know and you don't internalize it until that moment. Right. You realize I'm in over my head. Uh oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a you know, the school of life will always be a great educator. And I have one more question as our time winds down here, then we'll move to the formal wrap up. So my, my last question is, is more of like a social and cultural question, more of a thing for you to reflect on. Let me know your thoughts in, in my experience at least. Um, and I, and I was born in the, the 1990s, what was dominant, at least for my generation coming up, um, even if liberal arts or sort of a broader idea of education and something somebody was interested in wanting to continue and pursue, for example, um, you know, a lot of parents or even friends and people, you know, that other folks would look at as mentors and advisors and things like that, guidance counselors, whatever, um, the sort of, at least in my experience, dominant trend of people answering those more interested in liberal education or a wider education was sort of, well, what are you going to do with that degree? Yeah, right? sure. And, and I, I think in retro, obviously every generation has its problems. And I think there's a lot of good intention behind a lot of this when people say this. But um, as someone who was born in the 90s, and I think this is interesting to throw back to you because you, you, you happen to be older than me. So I'm thinking, I think we're going to look back sure? at sort of that industrial trend from the 70s 80s and 90s as as doing a lot of damage to the idea of education where a lot of people were peppered with the idea of hey like you might be interested in exploring some of the finer points of philosophy but anyway what are you actually going to do with that is that going to get you x y and z job i don't know i'm very uncomfortable looking back on that being the dominant thought in my head by the culture around Mm -hmm. me and, and the people supposedly advising me and i know others have a very similar experience what what are your thoughts on that well, I think about it a lot as the president of a liberal arts college. And I, just as an aside, you know, I think a lot of people think liberal in liberal arts means political on the left. And I think arts has something to do with sculpture, painting, watercolor. <laughs> but, you know, it's arts because it's a craft, not a science. And it's liberal because it's open and it's free exploration. So it's important just to say that, uh, you know, I, again, I try to say real education, but um I think it's a really deep question. And because this question of you know whether it's how do we encourage students to study various things, what's it good for? So, you know, I always say studying the philosophy, studying philosophy, literature, and history makes you thoughtful. It doesn't just help you think. Those are two things. They're both really important in life. Mm-hmm. Learning how to think and learning to be thoughtful, being aware of your shortcomings, and being aware of, you know, of your humility in the face of the knowledge you don't have, understanding the complexity of problems. Those to me are, should be the part of what you get from a liberal arts education. They're really important. And most people would like to hire someone who is thoughtful and that sort of thing. <laughs> Communicate, read, write, listen, 
you know, if you're in a small group with people arguing about what's really going on in the Odyssey or the Iliad or, or Hamlet, you, you better be a good listener or you're not a good member of the intellectual community. So those are really powerful skills. And our students at Shalem College here in Jerusalem are in great demand. Uh, they may not know that when they enter. They may think, <coughs> they may be thinking, oh, I'm doing this for a lark. I'm doing this because it's going to be fun. I, I want to learn. And they romanticize it. But it's quite valuable in the workplace. So I, I think it's good for a lot of things. Um, it does not work the same way as accountant or dentist mm-hmm. or computer engineer or a mechanical engineer. Um, the forehead stamp credential kind of thing. Right. Where, where you know, they, it's a barcode and they scan it and they go, oh, he knows how to do this. She knows how to do that. We'll hire him. We need, a, we need somebody who knows how to do that or this. There are jobs like that and it's, they pay well and nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think there's a, an assumption that if you study, say, philosophy or literature or humanities, you get good for anything. It's not like you're going to make less. You haven't acquired any skills. You have if you go to the right college and you study the right stuff. I think the reason a lot of people gave that advice to you, the reason it was in the air, the other side of the equation we haven't talked about, is that in the 90s and in the 2000s, a lot of places gave up the field. (laughs) The humanities became really weird and, Mm -hmm. and highly political and not interested in the human heart and conflict with itself, but rather various ideological missions, activism, and, and, and so on. And so that's not good for much. So in that sense, you've got good advice. But I believe deeply that there are great, great, valuable parts uh, of, a, of a real education. First, they do help you get a job. They do help you have a good career. And most importantly, they teach you what it's like to be a full human being. That's worth a lot. So um, I would not, um, I would not treat it lightly. Excellent. I think that's a great place to move to our formal wrap up. So uh, Russ, as you know, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to tie things up, bring it full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me uh, officially ask you our official last question to every guest, which is, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how we should think on education and, and what's wrong with, with current approaches to education? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave this chat with one or two or just a few takeaways, if anything, from the whole chat, what would those takeaways be? Uh, I think the uh, we've had a very quixotic conversation. Quixotic is a reference to Don Quixote. And that's just a simple factual thing you can actually look up. It's not real education, but it's a useful kind of fact to know to know what a word means. Those are kind of the basics that we were talking about earlier. But we're talking about a more radical reformation of education than most people are, are willing to consider. If you think about the trends in the world, educational reform, um, they're depressing. I mean, <laughs> the things that are on the table in most places are, are not the things that that we're talking about here. A lot of what I'm talking about, again, I think there are a handful of places where this approach is, is paramount, is, is front and center. A handful of high schools, a handful of universities, a handful of colleges. So I don't want to paint too negative a picture. It's easy to pick on the, you know, the bad, depressing state of things and, and get overly pessimistic. 
But I think a lot of what I've said, I hope, is useful to people for their for their own lives, not for where they go to college or what they study when they go there. That might be relevant, not for education reform, although it'd be great if it, if it had an impact and we allowed more experimentation, allowed more, encourage more uh, diverse approaches to, to how we teach. A lot of colleges, tragically to me, and high schools are just cookie cutters of this more memorize a bunch of stuff, write it down, forget it a week later, and move on and take your credential and move out into the world. If, if you're going to take anything away from this, listeners, is that there's great education out there. Certainly pick your courses wisely, your faculty members that you learn with wisely, your places you attend wisely. But more than that, spend some time in, the, in your life after college thinking and reading and, and struggling with great books. There's, there's so many things to read. There's so much distraction that we fall prey to on our phones. Uh, there's, there are great minds to spend time with. If you don't know how to read, learn how to read. There are ways to acquire these knowledge, this knowledge and this experience outside of your formal classroom, outside of your formal college career. Find friends who are interested in ideas. Find friends who want to read books with you. Join a book club. Have a serious conversation about these ideas and grow. You know, if I had to pick one lesson here, which we haven't explicitly said, is great education is about growth. It's about adding to what you understand, not what you know simply in terms of facts and knowledge, but what you understand. And to do that, you have to read and you have to read widely and thoughtfully. Get started. Great. I think we'll leave it there. Russ Roberts, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Great talking, Alex. Look forward to the next time. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.